time, I'd like to invite the Guatemala team forward uh, as we share our testimonies this morning. And if you'll just come and stand here in the front of the sanctuary um, as we worship this morning, we thought it was too important to not have our own team members share the stories they saw firsthand so that they can bring back a piece of what we saw in Guatemala here to the church that supported us and sent us. Before we turn to scripture this morning, a passage that will ground all of our testimonies, let me give you a little bit on the background of the CP work that we currently have in Guatemala so that you understand the connections between everything. First, all of our worship, our, all of our work in Guatemala is in Guatemala City. The city is divided up by zones, so our CP work is spread out through the different zones of the city. But all of them are within 20 minutes of where we stayed, that is, as long as traffic was decent. We have three churches in Guatemala who are currently in the process of becoming full-fledged Cumberland Presbyterian churches. One of the churches we visited on Sunday morning, it's called Comunidad de Fe, or Community of Faith. Inside this church, literally inside the church building, is the CP Medical Clinic. And that's where our three doctors mainly spent their week. This school also has a school. This church also has a school, the Community of Faith School. And that's a mission point that the church works with. A second church that we have there is House of Faith and Prayer. That's where the hot lunch program is housed. So that means that during the week, 15 kids that are in great need come to the church building after school, and they receive lunch, tutoring, psychological help, Bible stories, love, and care. The non-medical part of our team, that's where we went through most of the week to work with those 15 children. The third church we have there is a new church development. That means that Finor and Socorro, who are Colombian missionaries currently serving in Guatemala, are planting this new church. It currently has about 50 people. They started the church plant this year. Anai Ortega is the third missionary that we have, also a Colombian missionary to Guatemala, and her main project is to administer the hot lunch program that we went and helped work with. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of background of what we were doing, boil it all down to three churches, one CP school, one CP medical clinic, one CP hot lunch program, and three Cumberland Presbyterian missionaries. With that said, let me read a passage of scripture that was a part of one of our team devotionals and that carried weight and power throughout the entire week while we were there. Hear now the reading of God's word from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 5. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has been raised, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. This is the story from the Bible that has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we learn from this text is that when an angel shows up, there is an earthquake, and that the angel looks like lightning. An angel simply translates to a messenger from God, 
Two weeks ago, as messengers from God, this team, we saw moments of God's presence show up like earthquakes and lightning. And that's the best way to describe it. Because we, got, we saw God show up in miraculous ways. We watched people in Guatemala who were on fire for God. We saw their witness and their testimony and were reminded of God's earthquake and lightning power through their lives, too. It is stories of these such earthquake moments that we want to share with all of you this morning. To make sure we hit all of the stories, we will do this time of testimony in an interview style where I will ask particular team members a question and they will answer. Let's start with our first Sunday morning worship when we got there. Cynthia, would you describe the church service that we went to on Sunday morning? How is it similar to ours and different? What impacted you about it? Um, The first thing is that this week I was contemplating how I would talk to you about it, and I was saying, how can I describe feelings? Because it was an unbelievable feeling that I had. The church itself, like she said, is housed in the same place where the clinic, on the first floor was the clinic, on the second floor was a big room where they had plastic patio chairs, a little riser, they had a guitar player, they had a piano player, and and drums. Um, They played, their, their order of worship was like ours. The difference that I saw and what really impacted me was when I was asked what my first impression was, it was that these people are so spirit-filled. It was like the hair on your arms would stand up and you would get this feeling because remember when you're a child and you sang the little song about this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, it was like these people were filled with light and they were letting their light shine. And that's, that's the part that impacted me the most. Um, of course, the service was in Spanish <laughs> for the most part, but it didn't seem to matter because everything that came through was so spiritual and, and so meaningful. And these people shared their love with each other, this spirit-filled was that they loved each other and that they loved us. I mean, it came through. And so that was my impression of the Sunday morning, the the reading of Scripture, the, I mean, they even took an offering. They, you know, it was the same exact thing, but it was just really impactful. And I don't, is there anything else that I can Perfect. That's great. Thank you. After the Sunday morning service Monday, we went to the hot lunch program. Um, All of us, including the medical team, went, and we did medical work with kids at the hot lunch program and the surrounding community. And the rest of us were assistants to the doctors, as well as worked with all the kids who were waiting for their checkup. Beth, would you describe the first day of work? What surprised you about it? What were you not expecting when we showed up? Um, First, may I say what I was expecting. I have been blessed to be able to go on mission trips before. I've been to Oklahoma a couple of times, and I went with our youth to North Carolina. 
And the thing that I always brought back from a mission trip was that I was so bonded with the people that I went with. It was a blessing to get to know our children in a different way than in here on Sunday morning. I know these people now, <laughs> good, bad, and ugly, we know a lot about each other. And that was a blessing to, to get to be with my, my friends for, for a week. Um, Micah had given us warnings, safety warnings, and I was a little nervous. Um, the night before when I was packing, I was really nervous, and Stan was trying to talk me kind of off the edge. Micah talked about kidnappings and buses being taken and not to leave the building and watch yourself. And so I was a little nervous. Um, I never felt unsafe, though. Uh, we were taken wonderful care of. When we got there that morning, I don't know what I expected that building to be, but it was about half this, it was about half the size of the pews. And we walked in and there were people everywhere. Um, but it was very organized. It was an organized chaos. Um, and they, and Mike had also said they're loving people. I've kissed every Guatemalan <laughs> between the Nashville airport and Guatemala City. And you walk in and they're all loving you. Grandmothers, granddaddies, babies, everybody's hugging and kissing. So I'm just right up, I'm at my home. This is, this is good for me. But there are rows of people on this side, probably four or five rows, and then there are two rows of people on this side, and now they've made our clinic, and I'm gonna take a little of y'all's thunder. You can, they've strung wire across the ceiling, and they've hung garbage bags down. White plastic. So one side is the doctor's office, the uh, uh, optometry, and one side is the dental office. And the people that are on this side, these are all the children that attend the hot lunch program and all their relatives. All these folks are here to see the doctors. These folks over here, I think, are probably just community people that have gotten wind that this team is here. So... And I've got a camera, and I want to make pictures. Well, I knew I wasn't in America anymore when I walked to Micah and said, is it okay if I make pictures? I don't have signed releases. And Micah's like, yeah, it's okay. Go ahead. So I'm making pictures. They're seeing the doctors. I'm making pictures. And they start, we have to start dilating eyes. And they said, Norma turned to me and said, do you want to die? And I no, no, I don't. Thank you. But Ellen did. So Ellen gets a little bottle of dilating stuff, and she's just going down the road dilating everybody's eyes, and the little kids are screaming, and everybody's chaos. Um, by the time she got to the end of it, though, the older people were sitting with their eyes wide open. They didn't know what we were doing, but it was for their betterment, and they were just ready for it, whatever needed to happen. I was also amazed that when the children finished their exams, they were sent upstairs so we went upstairs with them. Well, these weren't really stairs. Um, they were like plywood boards on a piece of metal thing that led up to a room that's smaller than the choir chancel. And there was a little table, and we just colored. And it didn't matter that we didn't speak the language. It, it didn't matter. We loved each other, and we colored, and we talked. And, and it was real hot, but that's okay, too. And then they had the kids come back down and get their lunch, and we went down and got our lunch, and everybody was so patient while we sat and ate our lunch. And you've got all these people waiting in line to be seen by the doctors, but everybody's patient, nobody's being ugly, everybody's calm. 
And they send these babies with these hot plates back up those stairs. And I'm thinking, in the United States, we would never have sent children up those stairs with those plates. They went upstairs with their lunch. They ate. They brought their little plates back down and turned it all, turned it back in. And then we started having our Bible lessons. We've got people screaming in the dentist chair. We've got <laughs> Dust over here thinks he's a doctor now because he's checking everybody's eyes. And we're playing games in the midst of this chaos. And we're loving and clapping and dancing and people are wailing. And I don't... I don't know what I expected, but there was so much love in that room um, and so much appreciation in that room. It was heartwarming. Walt, speaking of that first day, how did that first dental day go for you? Especially the story about the one child who screams the entire time. Well, I'm not sure that little kid had a whole lot of love for me. But um, it, it was like she said, we had uh, basically two different situations where we were treating people. And the first was just with garbage bags on a clothesline and, and you know, and basically in a folding chair. So. <laughs> and the, But there was, uh, the rest of the week, there was uh, a fairly well-equipped dental uh, unit and situation there. So it went, went really well. But there was one little kid in particular that had, couple of infected teeth, and they said he had had like a baseball-sized swelling on his jaw the, a couple of weeks before, so he needed to get those out, and he wasn't very much in favor of it, but his mother was, <laughs> uh, and so he he was behind the screen, and like she said, all the other things going on, all you heard for probably 30 minutes was just constant screaming. Uh, what they didn't know, I guess, was some of his most blood-curdling ones were before we ever got started, just trying to talk him into <laughs> And, uh, and to getting started. And, but anyway, we, we did. It, it was a team effort to get those couple of bad teeth out. Uh, so. As painful as the screams were, I would argue that that was an earthquake moment on the trip. His mother knew that he needed these teeth pulled, and she said to Walt and to his translator, do whatever it takes. Because it was that important yeah. for him to have help. And, the, the, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't like to hear it, but, of course, there's a lot more need. We just did the worst things. You know, the biggest problems we tried to solve, and he still had other problems, so there's, there's a need for us to go back. That's right. Brian, would you explain the Hot Lunch Program, how far it's come since January of this year, a little bit about the background? So uh, the Hot Lunch Program just began in January of this year. We are the first team uh, to work with the Hot Lunch Program, period. Uh, and when it started, there was a lot of resistance and suspicion because it has very strict requirements. Every child has to attend school. Uh, they have to receive psychological treatment and tutoring, and the parents have to come and receive psychological treatment as well because of the amount of trauma that has been experienced in this city. And uh, I just have to tell this anecdote about the level of suspicion. One mother attended every day for the first two weeks of the program, because she was convinced that it was a scheme to kidnap and sell the children. For the first 10 days, she attended. Uh, but the, the growth that they have seen, we got a report from the teachers uh, through back channels that they've seen massive improvement in skill in the classroom, in confidence, and in energy level. 
in the past seven months, these children have grown inches and gained eight to ten pounds each, which is just incredible. In the past seven weeks, we've moved from having to beg people to fill the roster of 15 to wondering how we will cut it off at 20, uh, which is just a miracle in itself. As far as our medical team goes, we had three doctors, Norman and Teresa doing eyes, who are not here with us this morning, and Walt doing dental exams, just working alongside them as an honorary assistant to the eye doctors. The final numbers that I got this week for patients seen in four days, 548 eye exams, 106 dental, 41 general exams done by a Guatemalan doctor, a total of 689 appointments in four days. This is an unprecedented number from the entire denomination, 689 people who received medical care. Norman and Teresa could not be with us this morning, but I wanted to read an email that Norman sent regarding the trip. I will let you know it's every bit as nerdy as you would expect. (laughs) The central metaphor is an astigmatism. By far the most common vision disorder we found in the children was astigmatism. Astigmatism is a defect in the eye caused by a deviation from spherical curvature, which results in distorted images as light rays are prevented from meeting at a common focus. I will pray that we will be able to send glasses to help aid in the correction of these children's astigmatism. But trips like this are God's way of correcting the astigmatic perceptions that we have of others and hopefully will reduce the distorted images we artificially create by our own biases. My prayer is that our Guatemala friending trip will continue to build upon our servant ministry, and with God's direction, we can all work together, and maybe, just maybe, mankind will achieve the common focus of peace and love. Amen. Just worked alongside Norman and Teresa helping with eye exams. And because of Dust helping with seeing so many patients, we've decided to to present Dust with a certificate of optometry for his excellent work this week. I'd like to to take just a second and read this certificate in optometrical excellence. (laughs) Scottsboro CPC wishes to recognize Dust Rogers for over 560 successful auto refractions expert assistance of the doctors Johnson and Glass, and navigating a foreign culture with great clarity of vision with his honorary degree in optometry. Just on that note, would you mind telling us the story of the 21-year-old girl who came in to have her eyes checked? Sure. First of all, I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing on this trip, but I, I knew I was, I was hoping I was not going to be with the Bible school crew because I was thinking, I'm going to be lost. I'm not going to have a role on this trip. So I was worried. Uh, so when they said, Dust, you go with the medical team, I was like, yes. Yeah. So the first day it was Dust and the medical team. So then after that I was honorarily included as the part of the medical team. So I was just the medical team after that. So. It was great. Uh, thanks to the Lions Club, Scottsboro Lions Club, because you guys let Norman Teresa borrow your uh, auto refractor, which I didn't even know what that was before I went. 
uh, I was a little nervous that they were going to let me use this expensive piece of equipment, but after about a two-minute tutorial session, I was able to, to pick it up and, and go with it. And the, the thing, they dilate everybody's eyes, so they come through and dilate, and, you know, spray something in everyone's eyes that dilates their eyes. And after about ten minutes, we had the room as dark as we could possibly get it. We covered up all the curtains so their pupils are wide. And this, this little machine you get just right in their face, basically. You're about this far apart, and you're moving it back and forth, but it measures their pupils and it tells, you know, what they are, whether they need glasses or not, or if they need reading glasses. So it was very, very accurate. So thanks to the Lions Club, you guys, I know Wally and John and, and Joe, and, and there's probably other Lions, but thank you guys. They sent us with a great supply of glasses, too. Everybody got reading glasses that warned them. We, we had lots of prescription glasses, but Norman Teresa is still going to make about 100 pair of glasses, mainly for the children, because we didn't have enough children's frames. But the one girl they're talking about came in, and she was with, I think, her grandmother. And her, her grandmother was very, very agitated because this child was, you know, maybe maybe she didn't know much to, to how to behave or whatever. But this was a 21-year-old girl who was a deaf mute. She couldn't hear. She couldn't talk. And she couldn't see. Basically, she could see from here up. And that was it. Everything else was a blur to her. So, you know, I'm, I've, I've checked several already, and so I'm kind of getting an idea of what's, What's good, what's acceptable, what's not. And I check her left eye is like minus 5.75. You know, minus 0.25 is considered good or minus 0.5 is good. She's minus 5.75. And then the other eye, right eye, it's minus 7.75. That's as high as it goes. So it's uh, it's off the scale. So I, I check it again because I'm thinking this can't be right and the same thing. So I, uh, I knew when I had a problem, I you know, normal, we had an assembly line going up. We were, we were, we were making improvements every day. It was kind of like lean manufacturing. We were getting our process down. So we were seeing lots of people. Uh, and, and Teresa was the main, she was the general in there directing people what to do and did a great job. But I had Norman come look at this, and he, he gives me the look, and he goes to Teresa's dispensing of the glasses. And we both got two interpreters that we're working like crazy who are also honorary ophthalmologists now, too. <laughs> Uh, but they go, and we think, surely we're not going to have anything that will fit this girl. And, and, and we've, we've helped her mother or grandmother, too. But Teresa and Norman start looking, and they think, well, certainly we're not going to find anything in a, in a lady's frame. And I think the first box they reached into, the first one they found was a, was a lady's frame. And when she put it on, her face just brightened up. And, I mean, it opened up her whole world to her. She could see. And, and she looks at us, and she said, like that. And before she left out of there, she was she was doing this. I mean, she was giving us two thumbs up, and I mean, she was telling everybody. She said that's what she'd do. And uh, she actually came back two days later. We gave glasses to the mother too, who got hit by a car the next day. Didn't hurt her too bad, but it messed her glasses up. She came back and got glasses, and the mama wasn't near as agitated with the daughter on that two days later when she came through. I could tell things seemed like a lot better. And she brought two more smaller children that she had checked out. So it was, we opened up that girl's, we, we rocked her world. That's an earthquake moment. This is a pair of glasses that neither Norman and Teresa thought we even had. That miraculously showed up where they should not have been to give a girl sight after 21 years of blindness. On behalf of Norman and Teresa not being here, Susan, would you share with us the stories of several men who came to get their eyes checked carrying their Bibles under their arms. I'm going to preface this um, in saying that 
while we were sorting and resorting all the glasses to get them, the men, women, the children, I, we knew that we'd make an impact on their lives. I don't think any of us really knew the profound impact that we were going to make on some of their lives simply with a pair of glasses. And I mentioned last week little Javier, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more. Little Javier was the first child to get his get his eyes checked, got his glasses. He came out. He was so proud of those glasses. And he would, if you mentioned, you know, anything about his glasses, which are los lentes in Spanish, los lentes, oh, he would just beam. And then he would adjust. Every few minutes, he would adjust. He would clean them. Everything about those glasses he loved. Well, he went home that night, and he came back running frantically to Micah. Oh, no. The glasses were all crooked and bent up. What on earth did Javier do to his glasses? Well, he slept in them. (laughs) He didn't want to take them off, even to sleep. So Micah took them to Norman and Teresa. They worked on them. Then they took him back. And he had come in the second day with a little strap around his glasses. So we took him back to him, and he was happy because he could wear his glasses once again. This little boy was extremely talented. And you will I took a picture of him and of some of the artwork that he did. He was very meticulous in all of his work that he did, and especially his artwork. It it was much better than I could do, but he took his time with it. And I know, I don't know what's going to happen down the road, you know, to Javier, but I do know that he certainly has potential, and whatever he does, he has potential. So then the other two, the other end of the spectrum, there were quite a few of the older men who came with their Bibles under their arm, their Santa Biblia. And they couldn't read their Bibles anymore because they couldn't see. So they had their eyes checked. They got new glasses. They tested to see which one, you know, would be the best. And they were so excited. They started just reading their Bibles in Spanish. So they left that day. They were filled with such gratitude for what we had done for them, and they were certainly blessed and were so happy to be able to read uh, their Bibles once more. That's an earthquake moment. Men who literally came in, and the only reason they wanted glasses was so that they could read the living and active Word of God. While we were there at the hot lunch program, we saw that the kids loved learning English words. Cynthia... Will you tell us about Alicia asking you the different English names for animals? Okay, we were, were there, and they were so eager to learn everything. I mean, they would ask us all kinds of questions. And there were these two particular little girls, actually three joined later, but they would come up to me and they would say, um, let's see, what is, que es uh, perro, okay, which is what is... Pero it's a dog. Okay, so I would say dog, and they'd go, dog, and they'd go back and they'd write it down, and I'd have to spell it for them. And also, I, you've got to understand, I don't know very much Spanish. 
Okay, so quickly, you know, they'd come back and ask, what's gato? That's a cat. And they'd come back and ask something else, and I would say the word. And after a while, I was thinking to myself, they better not come back and ask any more questions because I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> but then they brought a little picture book, a little child's picture book that had all sorts of pictures, you know, ball, grass, tree, all that. So I, they would point to it, and then they'd say the word in Spanish, and then I would tell them what it was in English. But it was only because it was a picture of a tree. <laughs> you know? So, But they were... They were so grateful and so their faces just lit up because these children were hungry for love. They were hungry for attention and they were very eager to learn. And I think this hot lunch program where we were, which also feeds their bodies but also feeds their minds with the tutor, uh, was, uh, it's just an exceptional thing to watch their little minds just absorbing all this. So it was a very special moment for me, and I got sort of close to these little girls. Uh, Wednesday morning we went to the school, and that's where we delivered the pillowcase dresses and balls to the boy. Uh, Rebecca, can you tell us what you saw at the school um, and the impression that you had of Alba, who was the director of that school? Um, Probably the school was probably one of the most interesting things to me. Um, They were like first grade through sixth grade. And there were very small classrooms with some old wooden desks that they had painted. Uh, The school was painted very brightly, bright colors. Um, The fourth grade classroom probably being the largest, I think I counted about 28. Um, The teachers aren't paid very much. There's a high turnover uh, because what they make a month is not enough to get them through the month. Um, But then there's Alba at the helm. Uh, And her daughter is a dentist that helped Walt uh, and helped us on that very first day as well. Uh, But Alba uh, is in control. Uh, (laughs) She uh, started this school. Most students there go to uh, a private school, but these students can't pay for that. So... She started this ministry, um, and it was in a building that I don't think was very much wider than this church. It was very long. She let us go through. It's just cinder block, concrete. Uh, they were working. They greeted us. Um, we went back to the back courtyard, and that's where we gave out the dresses. And so each class came and visited us. Um, and we gave out the dresses. We gave out hacky sack balls. Um, I don't speak much Spanish, but there are a few things that are universals. Uh, one, little girls like to shop. And two, given hacky sack balls, little boys will play keep away. Uh, that's universal. Uh, so we gave away all our dresses until we got to the sixth grade girls, and I thought, you know, they won't want these. Uh, you know, they're, you know, sixth graders in every country are the same. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they came, and there were about eight of them maybe. So the little boys are off, and they're playing ball. And we handed out some dresses, and we mainly did it by, you know, if lengthwise, because they wear uniforms. 
Um, and then we had some over on a table kind of behind us. And so then we see them kind of peek back there. Uh, they wanted to pick out their own dress. So they went back there and they chatted it up, picked out some dresses, uh, and went back. Uh, but before we left, uh, Alba took us down into the kitchen, um, which was probably half the size of the choir loft back there. And they were cooking a big pot of, I'm not sure what, but <laughs> my stomach was not 100% that day. So uh, it still smelled good. Uh, but she asked us if we want some. I'm going to pass, but thanks. Um, but the cook was down there, uh, and there was one particular little girl, Fatima, who fell in love with Brian and followed him everywhere. So she was down there with us, and uh, Alba wanted to ask us, could she pray? Um, and I think that was the lightning moment for me. Uh, she closed her eyes, and I don't know what she said in Spanish, uh, but the Holy Spirit was with us at that moment. Um, and I don't think I'll ever be the same, but in that moment, you know, I thought of all of you. Uh, and I thought of Stroby starting Mother's Day out, and what a ministry that's been, but what a ministry this school is. Uh, and she's passed that service onto her daughter who passed it on to every person Walt pulled a tooth from. Uh, it, it was it was it was life altering. Um, and I'm grateful for you that helped us money wise and making things and just allowing us to go. The night after we visited the school, we went to a Wednesday night Bible study. Brian, you want to tell us a little bit about the beginning of the Bible study? I will. Uh, the Bible study time began with a devotional, standard Bible study. We felt like we were in our wheelhouse. We could handle all this. And it went for 40 minutes or so. Uh, and then we, I thought, okay, we're wrapping up. We're going to pray and get out of here. And we were going to pray. And the missionary said, uh, Micah, can you translate? We're now going to begin uh, time 30 minutes of prayer. And I heard it in Spanish, and I thought, maybe I misunderstood. <laughs> but I had not. <laughs> and we began a time of 30 minutes of prayer, and they all got out of their plastic folding chairs and spun them around and got on their hands and knees. And we're all looking at each other like this. <laughs> but we did too. We turned around and we got on our hands and knees, and we prayed with them for 30 minutes and understood uh, very little, but the emotion in the presence of the Spirit was uh, incredibly palpable. And I think, Beth, are you going to read something? Uh, This is a reflection from Ellen about that night. I'm sorry Ellen couldn't be here with us today, but she sent the answer to her questions. And... um, I don't, I don't know if y'all know, like really know Ellen, but she's not emotional. Or if she is emotional, she does it in her bedroom, behind closed doors, not for anybody to see. And she was very emotional Wednesday night. And it makes me uncomfortable because I've not seen her like this. And so this is her question and her answer. Micah sent, said, what impacted you about the prayer service on Wednesday night? She said, at the prayer service, I was very moved by how emotional the members of the church were while they were praying. 
I teared up and caught myself turning away so no one saw me cry. But then I realized almost everyone in the room was crying and that I didn't need to be embarrassed about letting people see me get emotional. It was an amazing feeling to forget my inhibitions and to allow myself to truly succumb to the power of prayer. She's not like her mama. (laughs) Another thing that had a huge impact on me Wednesday night was seeing Fernanda. She was a young lady that came and worked with us um, who we were able to understand that she and Ellen are both in university and they have a lot in common. Um, Fernanda had shared with us that she really doesn't have a home to live in. Her mother has some mental illness and she goes from place to place and she wasn't going to be able to go to university because she couldn't pay for it. It was $130 that she had to pay and the graciousness of people on our team that, that got paid. Anyway. Um, even though we did not speak the same language, I felt a connection to her from the first day. She became very emotional during the prayer service and knowing all the things that she had been through made me just want to be there for her and to let her know that even though I might not understand her struggle, I was praying for her and will continue to do so. She is a very special girl. And I hope she knows she's in my thoughts very often. That Bible study, I would argue, is an earthquake moment for everybody who was there. We literally, as you can see, felt the Holy Spirit move. It was a bolt of lightning for us, where we were completely opened to see what the Spirit was doing in the lives of those in Guatemala and the ways they convicted us to get on our hands and knees and pray and mean it mean it. Beth, many times I heard you say they just get it and we don't. What do you mean by that? They prayed from the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet. They prayed out loud. When they ask for prayer during the church service, they ask out loud. We are all we keep our, we keep what's going on to ourselves. We deal with it between us and God. I do. I don't always let down everything. They did. When those babies prayed at their food, I pray at my food. I thank God for it. But you know what? I know I'm going to have another meal. Those babies really didn't know they were going to have another meal. They prayed so earnestly, and they meant it so sincerely, because hope is all they've got. I've traveled, but I've never been any place like this before. I've never seen poverty like this before. And they have hope. They have hope in God. They have hope for a better tomorrow. And they pray. And their prayers mean, I think, probably more than mine did. I'm working on getting better at that. Almost like they got it more than we did. Thank you, Beth. Amen. Well, 
you worked alongside a dentist in Guatemala by the name of Albita. How were you inspired by her work there and impacted by the overall trip? Well, of course, it was very inspirational, as everybody has alluded to here. Uh, Albita is the daughter of Alba, who started the school, and uh, they're just two special women. They, they, uh, the thing that impressed me uh, was that they saw a need and they, they set about trying to meet it um, without ask, without having to have all the pieces in place. You know, they used what they had and tried to make things better with what they had, and. Uh, Albita shared the story of how the school got started, uh, and I think it's worth repeating. Uh, I think her mother was just uh, noticed a little kid in the neighborhood that was playing during school time. He was running around on the street during school time, and she said, "Why aren't you in school?" You know, and he said, "I don't go to school." You know, and he was hungry, so she fed him, and then he was back the next day for another meal. <clears throat> and then, uh, she, after a few days of that, she said. Well, okay, if you're not going to go to school, then I'm going, to, I'm going to teach you. You know, show up here tomorrow and you'll get your meal, but we're going to at least get a little bit of education too. And then from that, it, you know, he had a friend, and it started with just two or three kids, and then I think it's 185 now. And she's basically, you know, educating these children. Uh, they do charge tuition if you want to pay it, but it's, it's not – Nothing compared to the cost of running the school, and they just operate on uh, donations. And I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> it just comes. From, she just makes it happen. And her her daughter is much the same way. She really just started this little uh, dental clinic uh, just because she felt there was a need, and there is. Uh, but they just, uh, just don't take no for an answer, and they're not, you know they don't become discouraged just because they don't have all the pieces in place before they begin, and so. That's very inspirational to me. Alba and Albita are those oaks of righteousness people uh, that we hear about from the book of Isaiah that we read earlier um, in our service today. Um, finally, I'll turn it over to Dustin and Rebecca for one last question. How did you decide to go on the trip, and how have you been impacted overall by it? <laughs> um. I always wanted to go on a mission trip. I, I never went because our children didn't need me to be on the trip with them. They needed to be their own people. Um, and you saw to that. Thank you. Um, but when I, I told us after Brian and Micah came um, that if she wanted to do a trip to Guatemala, I really were, was interested in going. Um, I didn't want to go without him, uh, and uh, I just didn't realize she'd do it this year. <laughs> so when it came up, we said, well, you know, we'd pray about it. Um, and I promise you that very next day in my devotion, and I can't go back, I can't find where it was, it spoke. To us, Dust was doing his exercises, and I was reading my Bible just like we do every morning. And I said, "Oh my gosh, you're not gonna believe it! It says we have to go on the mission trip." <laughs> I look right here. Uh, well, you know, we thought, well, we'll pray about it a little bit more. Well, then we, there were some other things that just happened. So, you know, when the 
door presents itself, it's time for you to open it up and go through. Um, and so it, it was really a great experience. Um, I learned that we take a lot for granted, like clean water. Um, but, it, you know, they just kind of go with the flow and take it and go. Like Walt said, Alba didn't have all the pieces to make that school work, but, boy, it works. Um, and Micah said she'd really like to retire, but they just won't let her. Um, they, uh, it, it was just, a, it was a great trip. Ditto. <laughs> the, those are our people down there. They're coming Presbyterians just like we are. And we, what I did notice was a lot of the people who were in church with us on Sunday took off work, and, and, and these were some people who had jobs and did work and stayed at the clinic with us the whole time to kind of help with crowd control. And just and a lot of them spoke a lot more English than I spoke Spanish, so we've made friends, friends down there, and that was a good friending trip. Hopefully we'll, we'll be back. Thanks to the team for sharing. Uh, the team at this point can sit, and I'll end with two stories uh, from the trip to kind of finish us out. And then we're actually going to skip down to the hymn of invitation. Because after you hear stories like this, I think the only appropriate response is to get up and sing to God be the glory. So that's what we're going to do. But to end, let me tell you a story about two beautiful young ladies um, that I will end with this morning. About a month ago, I received an email from a young girl named Fernanda. She started her email like this. I don't know if you remember me, but... And from there, she began to list what all was going on in her life. Fernanda was born to parents when her parents were far too young to take care of her, so she was raised by her grandmother instead. I met Fernanda seven years ago on my first trip to Guatemala. At that time, she was 12. She was a shy girl, very reserved, but intent on seeking me out to talk to me. So we talked, and she cried. We prayed. We exchanged emails. And frankly, I thought that was it. I'd never see that girl again. When Fernanda found out that I would be in Guatemala this summer with the team, she asked if she could come join us and work alongside us. I was thrilled. I was thrilled, and she was more than welcome to come and work with us. So she took a bus down from Guatemala City, from her town, which is six hours north of where we were. She spent the week working with us. Fernanda's now 19 years old. She's going to college to be a lawyer. She has won awards and debate at a national level, and she deeply cares about working to help the injustices that occur in her own country. While there, Fernanda had a breakthrough moment in her faith. For the first time in her life, she realized what a Christian family was, thanks to our team who took her under their wing and showed her what Christianity was all about. She began to ask questions about the Bible and its meaning. Every night, she read scripture and prayed with the missionaries, since she was staying in the home with them. Within six days of being there, I literally saw her change. She was ready, ready to jump on board to follow Jesus Christ, and that is no small matter for this young woman. She has no family that takes care of her. She has few friends. She has raised herself, and she is currently pinching pennies to put herself through college and get an education. With every reason to give up, she is fighting tooth and nail. I don't know if you remember me, but what Fernanda doesn't know is that her picture has been the background of my computer screen for seven years. 
hard copy of her photo has been in my bedroom for the past seven. I don't know if you remember me, but I do remember her. I've remembered her for seven years. I've prayed for her for seven years. Seven years later, by the way, that's a biblical number. Seven years later, she wants to be baptized. She wants to go to church. She wants to learn more about God. One of the last nights that I spent with her, I showed her the team. I told her to look at the team and to remember that behind them stood 150-plus people that sent them. That was her new church family. We are her new church family. And I promised her that as a Cumberland Presbyterian church family, we would do everything we could to take care of her. At that moment, she curled up into a ball and cried in my arms. She asked me one question as she cried. She said, In Guatemala, when someone graduates college, a parent comes onto the stage with them And the parent has the honor of moving the tassel from the right to the left. The parent or the mentor who's helped raise the child is the one who goes forward and they move the tassel. It's a part of custom, a part of tradition. And then she said, I wanted to know if when I graduate, if you'd come and move the tassel for me. You've been a mother to me, a spiritual mother to me. I told her not if, but when she graduated college, it would be my honor to come and to stand beside her. This was an earthquake moment seven years in the making. There's a reason that when we partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, we are commanded to remember him. Because remembering and praying, remembering and praying, those have power They have power just maybe to someday become an earthquake moment. Just yesterday, I received a text from Fernanda. The team gave her a little bit of cash as we sent her on her way to buy her bus ticket and food. Most 19-year-olds with nothing would buy clothes or a purse. She went out and bought her first Bible. We have more remembering and more praying to do. The earthquake moments are far from over, but they will take work. Working towards life and resurrection always does. The second young lady that has impacted me in Guatemala, Alejandra, the young girl who offered me a hard taco with black beans on it, who didn't even have enough money to buy clothes for school. Alejandra no longer goes to school. She was raised by her aunt and uncle, but recently her mother has come back into the picture. When she did, she took Alejandra out of school for good. And now Alejandra doesn't go to school anywhere. I could not contain my hurt nor my sadness for this precious child, one I was so looking forward to seeing again, but she wasn't there. I suppose all I can do at this point is put her picture on my bedside table and put her picture as a background to my computer screen and remember and pray and remember and pray. Pray that God intervenes in a way that only he can. With earthquakes, 
with messengers like lightning, with oaks of righteousness, who get down on their hands and knees to pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.